Thank you, guys. Tragedy struck a week from this past Saturday in Sequoia National Park. There was a five-year-old boy walking with his family, and they were walking along the river, and my understanding is that he slipped and, and fell into the river, and it was raging. Now, adults get carried away by swift water all the time, but this five-year-old boy, he did not stand a chance except for the fact that a 22-year-old man jumped into the river. This man didn't know how to swim. And he jumped into the river in a, in a last-ditch effort to save this five-year-old boy. One witness recalled, somehow Victor managed to keep Vincent on top of his head, even while he was underwater, so that Vincent could breathe. He never let go of him, even when they went down under the currents a few times. The last effort he did was to throw Vincent out of the strong current so that his father could barely grab him. Miraculously, the boy lived, but the man did not. And stories like this of, of tragedy, of desperate, life-threatening situations, of, of salvation through sacrifice, they're compelling, aren't they? They stir something deep within that resonates with our souls. And we love hearing stories of heroism, of bravery, of self-sacrifice. We love stories of, of resurrection, of rejuvenation, of redemption. The classic narrative story arc that most books and movies follow goes something like this. It begins in paradise. Everything is wonderful. Everything is just peachy, right? And then tragedy strikes. Something occurs that disrupts unity, it disrupts peace, it robs joy, it threatens doom. And from there, things just go from bad to worse. And yes, different efforts are made to try to overcome this this threat that is at hand. And, and you have all these ideas that seem like this might work. That might work over there. And we try this, and we try that, and we try the other thing. Glimmers of hope are met with failure after failure after failure. And was, what was once a slippery slope is now just a free fall. And you get to that point in the story where it just seems like all hope is lost. We've tried everything. There's nothing that can be done. And that's when it happens. There's an almost miraculous twist in the story that changes everything. It happens in so many Disney films in the form of love's first kiss. And everything changes. In the case of the freedom that we all enjoy in this great country, the great twist is seen in the countless lives that have been lost, and they're filling 135 national cemeteries. In the case of Sequoia National Park, the twist came in the life of a 22-year-old man who didn't know how to swim. Last week we talked about the human condition, 
And according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it's not a pretty picture. And we asked, can these bones live? No. No. The answer is no, they shouldn't live. Is there any hope for these people that have shipwrecked their lives because of their rebellion against God, because of their failure to measure up? No. They've become spiritually dead. They've cut themselves off from the life-giving source that comes in their Creator. They've, they've enslaved themselves to God-defying influences of the world around them, of the devil, even of their own hearts. And they stand condemned. They stand condemned. They're on a collision course with the wrath of God that they well deserve. Story of humanity. It looks like a tragedy. And it looks that way even if you take the Bible and take it out of the picture. From a secular perspective, if you, if you buy into evolution, well then you believe in the struggle for survival. Throughout history, we've fought, we've wrestled, we've clawed. There have been a few times of peace, but far more times of conflict. According to an article in the New York Times, of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them, or just 8% of recorded history. That's grim. What's the solution? Maybe new vision? Maybe new leadership? Resources, time, energy, money? Maybe new technology? Maybe advances in medicine? Maybe economic revitalization or a better emphasis on education? Or what about uh, former U.S. presidential candidate uh, Vermin Love Supreme Solution? Free ponies for all Americans. I think that might do it. We've seen some advancements in history. Some good has come from human achievement. And we look at those things and say, ah, maybe this will work. Maybe this is going to help. Maybe they're over there, the light at the end of the tunnel. But we end up right back where we started. And the evil in the human heart, it, it just can't be avoided. It can't be escaped. According to the 2018 Global Peace Index. The global level of peace has deteriorized by 0.27% over the last year. This is the fourth successive year of deterioration, finding that 92 countries have deteriorated while 71 countries have improved. And the report reveals a world in which tensions, conflicts, and crises that have emerged over the past decade remain unresolved causing a gradual, sustained decline in global levels of peacefulness. I saw an article just the other day that, that uh, was showing the violence that is happening just south of us in Mexico and the politicians that are being assassinated over there. Something like 130 since last September. For all of our advancements, our policies, our technologies, our strides in education, none of this seems to be working. According to the Bible, nothing we do will work. There's one 
and only one hope for the human race, and that is a, an internal solution. It's a resurrection of the human soul. Can these bones live? No, the answer is no. It should be no. We're dead. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us. Oh, but verse 4. Oh, but verse 4. Would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? If I only had one piece of the Bible, this is probably very high up on my list. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You know, this is, uh, this is so good. I think we should just pray right now. I found a, an old Puritan prayer that I think captures some of the joy, some of the enthusiasm, some of the excitement that we should have. Would you, would you just close your eyes and pray with me? Let's thank the Lord together. Heavenly Father, you've led us singing to the cross where we fling down all our burdens and see them vanish where our mountains of guilt are leveled to a plain, where our sins disappear, though they are the greatest that exist and are more in number than the grains of fine sand. For there is power in the blood of Calvary to restore sins more than can be counted. You have given us a hillside spring that washes clear and white, and we go as sinners to its waters bathing without hindrance in its crystal streams. At the cross there is free forgiveness for poor and meek ones, an ample blessing that lasts forever. The blood of the Lamb is like a great river of infinite grace, with never any diminishing of its fullness as thirsty ones without number drink of it. O Lord, forever will your free forgiveness live that was gained on the Mount of Blood. In the midst of a world of pain, it is a subject for praise in every place, a song on earth, an anthem in heaven, its love and virtue knowing no end. We have a longing for the world above where multitudes sing the great song for our souls were never created to love the dust of earth. Though here our spiritual state is frail, 
and poor, we shall go on singing Calvary's anthem. May we always know that a clean heart full of goodness is more beautiful than a lily. That a clean heart can sing by night and by day that such a heart is ours when we abide at Calvary. Amen. Can these bones live? No. The answer should be no. Humanity is stuck in this hopeless state of death, of slavery, of condemnation. But there was a twist. There was a twist. And thank God for that twist. What is the twist? Verse 4, God. What happened? God happened. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that may be the state of humanity, but it is no longer the state of you and me if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. What an incredible twist because of God. Not because of us. Not because you and I were somehow good enough. Not because we had some type of potential. Not because there was something special that God saw in you. Not because of anything in ourselves. It was just God being rich in mercy. That, that's who He is. That's part of the fabric of His character. He moves with compassion to the down and out. Paul gives us three words, actually, Three other words that describe the action, the, what's behind God's action here. He says it was not only His mercy, but it was His love, and it was His grace, and it was His kindness. It was because of the great love with which He loved us that He acted. Yes, sin must be punished, but God, in His righteous character of, of, of love, saw the great predicament that humanity was in, saw that God's justice was going to have to carry out a punishment on humanity, and yet God's love acted in the midst of that and moved him to action. It was by grace, Ephesians said. Paul says twice in this passage that it was by grace that God intervened. It was a free desire within Him to shower undeserved goodness on fallen humanity. And finally, it was out of His immense kindness to those who only deserved anger. It's incredible. How did God demonstrate his, this great mercy, this great love, this great grace, this great kindness? Three things this morning. One, He made us alive with Christ. This is not something to be just glossed over. He made us alive with Christ. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. There are three places in the gospel where Jesus raised people from the dead. There's the widow's son in Luke 7. There's Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. And then there's Lazarus in John 11:41. And each time, Jesus speaks the word. And just like those bones started rattling and, and came back together and flesh covered them and life was breathed into them, it was by God's Word. God's Word that life 
was restored. Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He's passed from death to life. That's one of the main reasons we cling so tightly to God's Word. It's one of the reasons why our, our Sunday morning services are all point and all rely on God's Word. Because God's Word brings life. It brings life. After some of his disciples got frustrated and many walked away, the twelve uh, Jesus turned to and said, Do you want to go away as well? John 6:67 Simon Peter answered, "Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life." <laughs> the words that we read here in Ephesians are words of eternal life. You know, it's a wonderful thing when a quick-thinking, well-equipped, good Samaritan pulls a child out of a pool and does CPR and breathes life back into that child. It's an amazing thing when a defibrillator can jumpstart a still heart and bring it back to life. But it's one thing to be raised from the dead physically, If you were brought back to life, you have what a lot of people who have been revived have. You have a, well, you have a second chance. You can go on living for a while, for a period of time. But eventually, you're still going to meet that day when it's over. Spiritual resurrection, it's not like that. It's not a second chance. In fact, there's no chance involved at all. It's so much better because once you've been spiritually resurrected, you can never die again. Why is that? It's because spiritual life, the spiritual life that Jesus Christ gives us, is not dependent on ourselves. Our death is dependent on us. Yeah, we become death. We become dead because of our rebellion against God. We turned away from God. And we failed. We separated ourselves from Him, from the only source of life that there really is. But the new life that we have, it's not dependent on that at all. It's not dependent on us. It doesn't come from us. We didn't all of a sudden muster up enough energy and pull ourselves up from the dead and say, God, okay, I'm back. I'm going to try a little harder this time. No. Instead, Paul says in verse 5 that God made us alive together with Christ. The new life that we have, this new relationship that we have with God, It's totally dependent on what Jesus did. Nothing to do with who we are. And as we trust in Christ, God's Holy Spirit unites us to Christ in a way that applies what Jesus did and what he earned. It applies it to us. Paul writes in Romans 6, Do you not not know? 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When someone places their trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit does something miraculous. He baptizes them into Christ. That is, he immerses them into all who Christ is and all that Christ accomplished. Their sins, their guilt, their shame, fancy theological term, have been imputed on to Jesus. It's, the imputed just means to put onto or to apply to. All of our sin has been imputed onto Christ. It's been put onto him. He's, he's, he's taken on that weight, that guilt, that responsibility, that shame. And he died for that. And the death that he died, that served as their punishment. They're, they're united with Christ. And so he died for those sins. And so as he died, they, they died for their sins as well. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So our, our sins, all of the gunk, all of the nasty stuff in our lives, that has been applied to him. We're united with him in such a way that his death is our death. Our sins are paid for. Our guilt, it's taken away. And our old life of rebellion against God, well, that's put to an end. But here's the incredible thing. Not only are our sins imputed, placed onto him, but there's another imputation that takes place. This is incredible. Another transfer has been made. The Holy Spirit applies something else, but this time it's applied to us. And he takes Christ's righteousness, his perfection, and, it, and, and everything that he did to measure up to every single letter of God's law, and he applies that to us. Not only are we washed clean, we're, we're like plated in gold. The gold of Christ. We're clothed in righteousness. Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. Because of Christ's righteousness, because of every good thing that he ever did, of him measuring up to God's perfect standard, because that's imputed onto us, we're now righteous. And not in the cool, like, 80s term way. We're perfectly, majestically righteous in God's sight. I mean, how many times have you come to the Lord and you said, Lord, I, I confess my sin. I just, I've, I, I've really, I've really fallen short here. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for washing me clean. And, and you trust in that. That if you've confessed your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But man, so many times I've confessed my sins and just felt like, okay, well, 
Here I go again. Another chance. You know, slate's washed clean. But that's not the reality. The reality is, not only have I been washed clean, Christ's righteousness has been imputed unto me, and I'm gleaming in God's sight. This is incredible. We now measure up. We now qualify. Kind of like when I went, first went to get my first automobile loan. It was a uh, 2008 Jeep Wrangler. No, it was a 1998 Jeep Wrangler. And uh, I, I, we went and we saw it. We loved it. And I was so excited and went to apply for the loan and realized I don't have the credit to get this loan. So what do you do? Well, you have mom and dad co-sign. And my dad got on the phone with my mom. He's like, yeah, can we, uh, can we go ahead and co-sign? I think it's a really good car. I think we should do it. And my mom's like, I don't know. But I got the car. Because their good credit was now applied to me, and the loan went through, and I drove off in this beautiful Jeep Wrangler. I loved it until it broke down. Jesus not only paid for our bad decisions, but his righteousness, his perfect life, is applied to us. And it's because of this double imputation, the removal of our sin and application of the righteousness of Christ to our lives, that our relationship with God can be brought back to life. Romans six eleven. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the great twist here. This is the great reversal. Sin brought death, but Christ brought life. Romans 5.17 For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Once we were dead. But if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, now you are alive. And that is something to get excited about. God demonstrated his great love, his great mercy, his great grace, his great kindness as he made us alive with Christ. But he's done more. God has demonstrated all of this in raising us up with Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Once you and I, as we said last week, once you and I were enslaved because of our sin. We're held captive to these influences. The influence of the world around us that's turned its back on God. The influences of, yes, the personal reality of Satan who's going around like a roaring, prowling lion which is the influence of our own fallen human hearts, but not any more are we enslaved because Christ has raised us up. Remember how Paul, in, at the end of chapter 1, pointed to the power of God as he, as he showed us the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you remember that? Verse 20, He raised Him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So God raises Christ up, and he places him in a position of authority over all, for all time. Death had no power over him anymore. 
Neither would any influential spiritual power that existed out there. When we place our trust in Christ, we're raised up as well. And we're set free as well. In the synagogue at Nazareth, Jesus unrolled the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he finished reading, and he rolls up the scroll, and Jesus says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, because Jesus came to free captives. Just as Christ was raised up, so he's come to raise us up, so that we may no longer walk in slavery, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now work at work in the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were dead, we were enslaved, but God demonstrated his great love, mercy, grace, and kindness. He made us alive and he raised us up. And then finally we see he seated us with Christ. He seated us with Christ, raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. From sitting in the seat of judgment, about to be condemned, well, we stood condemned, about to receive the just punishment that we deserve. From sitting in that seat, being taken and placed on a throne of royalty. That's what he's talking about here. Now we're seated in a place of honor and privilege. And someone might say, well, (laughs) wait a second here. What are you talking about here? I'm not a dummy. I am very much aware that I am living here on earth in a body that's breaking down, stuck in a miserable job or in a relationship that isn't as fulfilling as I hoped it would be or whatever. Yeah, that's true. But positionally, if you're trusting in Jesus, you've moved from a place of being condemned by the heavenly King of glory to now sitting in a place of honor. You go from having that bad check pinned up behind the cash register of Joe's place to now having a caricature of your face drawn and then put above that that special booth that is now going to be perpetually reserved for just you and your guests. It's like going from a FICO score of 300, as low as you possibly can get, to going straight to 850. This would have made a big difference to the Ephesians. And we've talked about all the spiritual influence and the superstition and the amulets and the chants that they would do and the offerings and all of this stuff to try to get there themselves, get the spirits off their back and get the gods 
Artemis in particular to look favorably upon them. This would have been big for them. Once the Ephesians, they were walking around feeling like they're at the mercy of all these gods and all these spirit powers, and now Paul lays on them that none of this is a threat. But then Paul lays on them, you've got a bigger threat on your hands here. You've got the wrath of God here. But guess what? Even that is lifted from you. And you're seated in a place of honor. You were doomed. But in here in verse 4 through 6, Paul tells them, just like Christ is now seated in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, so they are now placed in the heavenly places. Because there you know it's Christ, they have nothing to fear. Because they're inextricably linked to the substitutionary death, righteousness, and all-surpassing power that comes in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. You know, you and I might not be consumed with a fear of the supernatural. Some people still are, especially in third world uh, uh, place nations. You go over with Don Rogers into Kenya and you realize that there is a very real fear among tribes people over there. And yet here in the United States, all that is kind of diminished. All, it's all been kind of turned into kind of this uh, fairy tale kind of stuff. And yeah, we watch it in movies and horror films and stuff like that. And that's all make-believe. We don't worry about that kind of stuff. We're more intelligent now. We, we may not fear supernatural spiritual powers as much as we once did, but there are other things we're afraid of. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of being taken advantage of. We're afraid of theft. We're afraid of financial destitution. Afraid of being insignificant. A life without meaning. Afraid of passionless jobs. That's a millennial thing, I think. Uh, afraid of public opinion. Fear of being found out. What about that one? You know stuff in your life that no one else knows, and you know that if they knew, then whoa. We could go on and on, couldn't we? In addition to all of that, because of our sin, we stand condemned before a holy, righteous judge. And if there's anything we should be afraid of, it's that. But the fact is, in face of all of these threats and all of these fears, stands the reality of what Christ accomplished. Because we've been united with Him, we've been moved from the judgment seat and given a secure position in heaven. It's a place of honor. It's a place of blessing. It's a place of privilege. It's a place of peace. It's a place of joy. And that is such very, very good news. We were without hope. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were condemned. Like that five-year-old boy who lost his footing, slipped into the raging rapids. We didn't stand a chance. We tried keeping our head above water. We tried following the rules. We tried enjoying life. We tried looking good on the outside. We tried living life to the full. We did everything we possibly could. But each time, we're met with the brutal reality that we just can't do it. It's not going to work. And we see that in people's lives who've, who've made it. 
They've earned it all. I mean, they've got bank accounts that just stretch on and on and on and on and on. And they've got people that look up to them. And their faces are on Netflix and all over the place. And we look up to them. You think they've got everything. And then they decide to end it all and you realize that that everything wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough. On our own, we just keeping, uh, keep kicking, we keep screaming, we keep grasping for breath until the inevitable pulls us down for the last time. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, the glorious, earth-shattering, unexpected twist in our story, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When the, goodness of God, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, Titus 3, 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God demonstrated His great mercy his great love, His great grace, His great kindness as He made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. And He seated us with Christ. And we come to this table this morning celebrating that work that Christ has done. 